a parable about invitations. Are there many more socially fraught actions than who gets invited to what and who does not or should not be invited? Who gets to choose who gets invited? And how do invitations get made? Who accepts an invitation? Who refuses? On what grounds? Humans are social creatures, and we care a lot about invitations from every angle, from the perspective of host and guest. We want to be included, but we usually don't want everyone to be included. And when I am the host, do I want to have to include everyone? I certainly do not want to be turned down by anyone I invite. There's so many power dynamics in all of these different angles, so many possibilities for hurt feelings. And so maybe it should come as no surprise that Jesus uses the the sticky challenges surrounding invitations to get at who God is, how God invites, and how we are tempted to judge God for not always inviting the right people. Have you ever been invited to something something you're interested in even, but before just accepting, you ask, well, who else is going to be there? I mean, I've done that. I would think pretty much all of us have done that. Nobody likes showing up somewhere all alone, not knowing a soul. It's not fun arriving at a place and immediately recognizing, oh, I stick out like a sore thumb. Nobody else here like me. Maybe you're dressed incorrectly for the occasion. Or maybe these just aren't your kind of people. But there you are, and to make sure that doesn't happen again, you ask next time that you're invited to something, who else is going to be there? But the thing is, sometimes worrying about who else will be there might keep you from something special, something extraordinary. When I was a junior in college, I went on a study abroad program to England through the University of Evansville. They have their own campus over there. It's a manor house. I think most of us would call it a castle because that's what it looks like. And, you know, Americans don't really understand the difference between a manor house and I still don't. My college had study abroad programs to Norway and Germany and Nicaragua, but they were all grounded in learning the language that would be there. I was still working on my English, so I wanted to see Europe, and I didn't need to learn another language, or so I thought. So I thought studying in England for four months would give me the opportunity to to see a part of the world that I always wanted to see. So I looked through this giant catalog of study abroad programs, and I landed on this one through Evansville. What I didn't know was that it didn't invite anybody outside of the member colleges. My school was not a member college of the consortium that made up this study abroad. So what I didn't know was that everyone else there, like 120 or so other college kids, they were all coming in a group of 10 or so from their own member school. So there were 10 from UW-Eau Claire, for example. There were 10 from some school in Kansas I'd never heard of. One from Texas. There was Indiana State had a contingent. I was the only person who had come alone. I had invited myself to a party where everyone else 
already had a group of friends. This is the kind of moment many of us would resist, and it was a moment that was going to last four months for me. I wonder sometimes if I had known how all that worked, that I would be the only lonely, would I have gone? I may have said, well, I, I guess that's not really for me, even though I had been accepted, even though I had been invited to be there. Some of you may know it was a good thing I accepted the invitation because you know who else was there? My wife, my future wife at the time. Going into it, on paper, it looked like I didn't belong, I didn't fit in, and yet I was right where I needed to be. It's one of the things this parable, I think, is trying to get at. Be careful about not accepting an invitation, thinking you're either too good for that event or not good enough. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. And the scenarios that follow are many, and to be honest, they're pretty confusing. The king sends slaves out to call upon those who've been invited, but the guests won't come. Which makes me wonder, is the king just a jerk? Like, do people hate this guy? Is he famous for serving bad food? What's the deal? Why won't they RSVP yes? We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us that part. We just hear that those who were invited choose not to show up. So the king sends out more slaves. Tell those who've been invited and who are now not choosing to show up that everything's ready. And it's good food. It'll be great. I promise. But this time, instead of just ignoring the invitation, the guest list makes fun of the king and his son's wedding banquet. One invited guest goes back to his farm, another back to his business, and the other potential guests seized the slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. Like, whoa, what's going on here? I mean, that's, that's coming out of left field. This is a very strange parable. And then we're told that the king was enraged. Well, yeah. I mean, not only are these guests insulting the king by refusing his invitation, they've killed his slaves. So the king sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Isn't this the king's city? And then the king said to his surviving slaves, the wedding is ready, but those <clears throat> invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find. So those slaves did. They gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. Is this the point? That it doesn't matter what kind of people get invited? God wants to just make sure somebody shows up? And just in case we aren't mystified enough by this strange parable, it ends like this. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who wasn't wearing a wedding robe. Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And this friend was understandably speechless. I would be too. Like these, sla these slave people were hollering on the street that the king wanted us to come up to his son's wedding banquet right away, so here I am. I accepted your invitation. But now this king, upon seeing this man who isn't dressed right, says to his attendants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As I looked into commentaries and listened to my sermon podcast where very smart people talk about this, I heard the smartest of them say, I just don't think we can know exactly what Matthew the Gospel writer is speaking at. <laughs> oh, that made me feel better. 
Matthew obviously has a point that he's making here, a really strong point. Many are called, but few are chosen is kind of the the punchline of that point. But the way Matthew gets to that point, this parable has lost its clarity. Is the king supposed to represent God? People refuse the invitation to the feast, so the king broadens his invitation. That seems godlike, maybe. But then this king casts a guest who has accepted the invitation out for not being dressed correctly. Hmm. Are the first group of people who reject the invitation, are those like the chief priests and the scribes that Jesus is constantly railing against? As though they are the first to receive that invitation, but then they make fun of the king and they kill the king's slaves? And who are the slaves supposed to be? Is that us? Followers of God who then invite others to come to God? Are we the second group of people invited to the feast? Those who accept the invitation? And does that mean we're supposed to be dressed in our wedding robes, ready to party? Or else get cast into the outer darkness? Might you and I be the king? Am I an oppressor or a liberator in this story? It's difficult, to say the least, to locate myself in this parable, which is usually what makes parables so effective. Like, we read one and we say, oh, wow, I can completely resonate with that character. The parable of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke, for example. Clear messages, clear roles, but this parable today... I'm just kind of confused, and depending on how I read it, kind of troubled. So rather than get stuck on who is represented by who, I'm going to dwell on this last line, many are called, but few are chosen. First, the part that says many are called, God's invitation is indeed broad. That's the the good news today, the clearest good news today. The breadth of God's invitation includes me and you and it crosses gender and ethnic and race and nationality boundaries. God invites people into love and mercy who I don't even want to include. I am tempted to correct God from time to time. Don't you know, God, that they worship the wrong way, I sometimes wonder? Don't you know, God, they've got the wrong theology or they don't really even care about the things you care about? But in some people's eyes... I'm the one that worships God the wrong way. I have the wrong theology. I don't even care in the ways that they would want me to care. So the good news is God's invitation is broad, broader than any of ours. And as comforting as the first half of this saying is, the second half is more sobering. Many are called, but few are chosen. Some who are called decline the invitation. And even among those who accept, some don't know how to dress for the occasion. In the case of this one guy, he's, well, he's, it's kind of like he's wearing sweatpants to a prince's wedding banquet, a Led Zeppelin t-shirt to a job interview. And I think this might be where the parable meets me today. If you're watching me, you most likely have heard God's call. Most likely you've accepted this invitation to follow him. The question for us then, those of us who've heard this call and accepted the invitation, the question for us is, are we doing the work of God's kingdom 
in our sweatpants. Just trying to stay as comfortable as possible. Like, yeah, you know, I could do the work of being an anti-racist, but that would mean I'd have to take off my sweatpants. I could read the Bible with my kids or show up on another Zoom for my kids' Sunday school class or whatever, but then I'd have to change out of my sweatpants. Living in the kingdom of heaven does not only happen by simply accepting the invitation, according to Matthew. What Matthew's saying here is there's more beyond simply RSVPing yes. Once we show up, we have to be willing to dress for the day. And that's not to be taken literally, by the way. I appreciate when people come to worship in whatever they want to wear. This is metaphorical. But basically it's saying, if you're going to work in the kingdom of God, shed your jealousy. Throw away your bitterness. Leave your worries and your fears tucked away deep in a drawer. Put on your gratitude. Wash yourself in hope because you're going to need to be prepared to smell like joy and look like peace and feel like love. It's not no shoes, no shirt, no service, like God turns people away for something as petty as wearing the wrong clothing. It's more like come to a party ready to party. You're not invited to a party so that you can be a wet blanket who has no intention of enjoying yourself. If you're accepting an invitation into the kingdom of heaven, then be present in the kingdom of heaven. Many are called but few show up and are ready to go. Instead, they hold on to their old gripes, their old grievances. They sneer at those other people who showed up, and they choose to just keep their sweatpants on. So, the good news is that God's welcome is broad. The exhortation that follows, the challenge for Jesus' followers, having said yes, let's do this. Party like there's no tomorrow. No, actually, Party like there's an eternal tomorrow. Proclaiming hope where it doesn't look like there should be any. Advocating for lost causes. Loving the unlovable. Caring for the earth and all of creation. All of it. Amen.